The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To you, your offspring, I give this land. From the river to Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So we are continuing in our Old Testament series for our summer teaching series where we walk through big themes and chunks in the Old Testament and see how these prepare us for Christ, how they, how they talk about Jesus, how they speak of Jesus. And the Old Testament has been described as a large room that is fully furnished but dimly lit. You think of that illustration that it's dimly lit, but it's fully furnished. And the New Testament, knowing what we know now, it shines a light. What we know about Christ and his life and death and resurrection shines a light on all these Old Testament uh, prophecies and stories and histories. And that's what we hope to do this summer through the Old Testament, to see how the Old Testament speaks of Jesus, how it prepares us for him. And so by doing that, we hope to better enjoy the Old Testament. If the Old Testament has been a, a sticky thing for you, if you think, well, I just, every time I read it, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on in there. And so we just go to the New Testament where things are maybe more familiar in there. Well, we want to see how great the Old Testament is and how it prepares us for Christ. And as we began last week in this series, we looked at the Garden of Eden. If you remember this, where everything began, where God does not have, uh, he does not leave uh, humanity to fend for themselves after sin, but he rushes into the chaos. He rolls up his sleeves. He promises salvation and rescue for humankind. The offspring of Eve would struggle with the offspring of Satan, but the offspring of Eve would have uh, triumph and victory over sin and death itself. 
And it was such a horrible day in the garden, but God tells us that rescue is coming. And the rest of Scripture, as we turn through the pages, we see how this is coming true and how God reveals more and more of what he had in mind for our rescue and who this would be. But things don't get better right away after this, after this promise. They actually, in fact, get even much worse. Adam and Eve have children, and their firstborn murders their secondborn. And it was horrible. It was the first time they experienced death. They had never heard about it. They had never read it in books. They had never heard stories on the news about murder. It's the first time that they had experienced real death. And it was horrible. And in the first, in a moment, in an instant, a quarter of all population was gone. And from there, things get better, right? Because this was horrible. It was, it was murder. And God promises rescue. And, and things get really good, right? Actually, they get worse again. Adam and Eve continue to be fruitful and multiply as God commanded to them and gave them the privilege of having children and multiplying the, um, uh, their family and filling the earth with humankind. We read in Genesis chapter 6 that God saw the wickedness of all that he had created and the wickedness of man was great, that every intention of their thoughts and their heart was inclined towards evil. And God decides to clear the earth of humankind. But God has favor on one man and his family, and that's Noah. And you probably know what happens next, right? The Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. Get those children out of the muddy, muddy. Come on, you guys. No, you don't have to sing with me. He called to the animals, right? They came in by twosies, twosies. Called to the animals. They came in by twosies, twosies. No? Elephants and kangaroosies, roosies. Okay. It's very cute. Is this what he's going to do the whole time? It's very cute. It's a very cute story to talk about God filling the planet with his wrath and anger and punishment for sin of man. Painful punishment for his creation. Painful punishment for for man's heart and mind that were inclined to evil in all sorts of ways, but he spares this one family, Noah and his family, and multiple generations pass, and things are great, right? In fact, they are even worse. Multiple generations pass after Noah and the flood and the cycle of sin repeats itself and it continues to spread. And this time God comes to an idol-worshipping family and chooses from that family one one man called Abram, later to be called Abraham. We'll call him Abraham today in in our sermon. But he's the same guy. And he tells to Abraham, he says to him, I am going to bless you and you will be a blessing and and all nations will be blessed because of you. And the work that I will do for you and through you uh, will, you will find tremendous blessing. And all the world will be blessed. And so today, today we look at Abraham's encounter with God in Genesis chapter 15. The, f- the flow of this passage is pretty straightforward. We see the promise to Abraham. We see obstacles to trusting in him. And then we see God's answer to those obstacles. And so let's look first at those three. Let's look first at God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. You know, in, in chapter 12, first, we see that he, he says, I'll bless you and make you a blessing, and, and all nations will be blessed because of you, and all who curse you will be cursed, and all who bless you will be blessed. And here in 15, we see a little bit more detail of that blessing, specific blessing, that God would make Abraham's name great, that he would provide for him a, a, a huge family that will fill the earth, and he'll raise up a great nation of Abraham's descendants. We know them as Israel. He would bring into existence a great nation 
that uh, from those people will come God's promise to, to once and for all um, conquer evil and death and sin and to bring salvation and rescue. And through this nation, God will bring blessing, therefore, to all the nations of the earth. The word bless, this is what God is doing with Abraham. He's blessing him. He is making him a blessing. This word bless is a very significant word in the, in the Old Testament. It's a very significant word in the gospel, or I'm sorry, in the book of Genesis, and even in these beginning chapters of the book of Genesis. It's so full, so dynamic, so beautiful. It means more than just doing something nice for someone. To bless somebody. You know, that's how we use it. That's how we use the word bless. It's to do something nice, a nice gesture. I want to bless you. What's your favorite Starbucks drink so I can bring it by your work? Right? That's, that's a blessing right? This is why God uses it. When God says he will bless someone, he is saying to that person this. To bless is to say, I will give you everything you need to live out your created life as intended. When God says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, he's saying, I'm going to give you absolutely everything that you need in this life to live it fully and abundantly as I hope for you. Everything I will give you and by contrast, to curse somebody, the curse that is on the world and on the earth, by contrast, is what happens when God's creation rebels against God's blessing. When God says, I have given you everything you need for relationship with me and peace with me and joy in this life, and we say, I think I want to do something different. Curse comes through that. But God's going to bless Abraham and therefore bless all nations through Abraham. And with that definition in mind, God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, from you will come my once and for all answer to sin. The world has been corrupted from creation, but I am going to rescue it. I'm going to give everything that this world needs, every person, everything that they need. I'm going to bring it through you, Abraham. And it starts with my relationship with you. And he says in verse 1, do not be afraid. For I am your shield, I am your hope, not your character. I will defend you, not your strength and not your ability. I will not forsake you in the times ahead that are very confusing, but I will go out before you, and I will protect you, I'll be your defense about you. Because God's blessing is always a promise to give us everything that we need to live out our lives as he intends for us. His blessing is much more than the good things that we get from God. It's much more than the nice blessings, the kindness, the manifestations of his love. The things that we think of when, when we receive God's blessing, we're really just receiving the, the examples of his blessing. The kindness, the examples of his love for us. Many of us might be enjoying these things today, like the, the fruitfulness of, of our labor that results in financial contentment. The, the friendships that we have, the, the good health that we enjoy. And we say, God, thank you for blessing me. But these things are merely just the, the, the stuff that God gives because he loves us. It's not the blessing itself. The blessing is him. What's so remarkable about this promise to Abraham is, is not that the material blessings are going to come to him. He says you're going to have a land and you're going to have descendants. The, the most magnificent thing about this is that Abraham's going to get God. He's going to have a relationship with him. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be my people and I will be your God forever. This is the tremendous blessing that he receives is a relationship with God. The promise that he'll be joined to God forever in relationship. It's the promise of God himself. 
It says, I'll give you a land, I'll give you a family, I'll give you a great name. People will remember you, but Abraham, I'm going to give you myself, and I'll, give, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and I'll bring others into relationship with me through the plan that I have for you. People will call on me, and I will hear them when they call. And this is a great blessing. Abraham knew what happened in the Garden of Eden, and God is saying, one day that sadness will be gone for good. And Abraham replies, I knew you would do it. You're such an amazing God. How could I ever doubt in your goodness? That's not what happens. <laughs> he doesn't say that at all. He says, God, stop playing games. Kind of. He says, you know who I am. You know that I'm 90 years old, and I don't have a child to carry my name. My wife is unable to have children. And he even blames God by saying, you have given me no offspring. You have blessed me with nothing. And now you say you're going to give me everything? And here we see the obstacles to trusting in God. This point number two is that our obstacles, so we see this promise of God to bless, to have a relationship with Abraham, and now we see the obstacles to trusting in him. It's doubt. What are the obstacles that Abraham faces? Doubt. Doubt occurs when we compare our circumstances with God's promise. The same Hebrew word is used here back to back. He says, you say you will give something, but you have given me nothing. That's what Abraham tells God. I do not believe that this conversation with God is a tame and casual conversation that Abraham is having with God. Given the weight of these words that are used, in the context we find them in, Abraham is saying, yeah, right. The stories of Abraham and Sarah reveal how difficult it really is to trust God. Let me tell you that right now, how difficult it is to trust God. If you are feeling it's hard to trust in God, we have a great example. All through Scripture of God's people who wrestle with trusting in God. The, the, the story of Abraham, we see him, he stands in the clearing and he gazes up to the stars into the sky and God says, go ahead, Abraham, try to count them. That's how numerous your offspring is going to be. And he gazed at the stars and his heart was burdened with one reality, that he and his wife were childless. His circumstances did not match God's good news, God's promise. And God makes a wonderful promise to Abraham and Sarah about their future and their descendants and about the land that they would have and their family forever. But years roll on and they don't have it. Sarah remains without a child. She remains barren. Abraham remains fatherless or without, without a child. And we should not underestimate how hard this must have been for them at times for them to trust in God. It's easy to look at Abraham, right, as the pillar of our faith, the, the father of our faith. And to look at him and say, wow, he was, just a, he was just an all-star believer in God. How easy it must have been for him to walk with God and to hear from God personally. I want to trust in God like that. But that wasn't the case. And why do we think it'll be any easier for us to trust than it was for Abraham? Abraham's true test of trusting in God comes at the climax when God actually does bless him. We'll fast forward just a bit. He does bless him with a son. He gives him Isaac as promised. And he tells him to take his only son, if you know this story, take your only son to, the, to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. Go ahead, take your son, the fruit of this blessing and promise, and go ahead and kill him. 
All these years, Abraham and Sarah have waited for a son, and now Abraham is told to take Isaac and kill him. And this is told in Genesis 22, and I want to read this for us. I believe you'll be able to follow along here in verse 1 in chapter 22. Look at this part. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, I the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And this is where all of us would say together in unison, I could never do that. Right? I could never do it. Kill my son that you have promised, the offspring that you have promised, And that's because we don't know what Abraham went through. We don't know. We have yet to go through what Abraham went through, through these years of testing, years of God chipping away at Abraham's self-sufficiency, years of doubt for Abraham and lack of trust, and God chipping away at his self-sufficiency, trusting in himself to the point that he got so confident in God and his promise to him that he knew that nothing could get in the way of his promise. Years of God convincing Abraham that his circumstances are not an indication of God's faithfulness. Years of God proving to Abraham that it doesn't matter what is going on in your life. Your feeling of my lack of presence is not an indication of my lack of care or my lack of intention of coming through on everything I've promised. And so Abraham looks at the stars, and he does something remarkable. Against all hope, he hopes. Against all doubts, he doubts. He he believes. Against all things against him, he trusts in God. He rose out of his doubts and his fears, and he believed. And then God says something to Abraham. He says, faith Abraham, that is faith. And that is the only thing, the only kind of faith that will be the instrument of my blessing to you and to all of creation. That is faith, Abraham. That's what it looks like. There's a wrong way to believe in God. We need to see this from this passage. There's a wrong way to believe, and there's a right way to believe. Faith that leads to salvation is not simply faith that believes in God or even tries hard to obey God's commands. The righteousness of God is not credited to those who seek after being spiritual or good people, but is found in, put, in those who put all of their hope and all of their trust in what God has promised. Specifically, 
putting our hope and trust in the righteousness and life and death and resurrection of the promised Lamb of God who would come, Jesus Christ. His, his faith is an example to us. And his faith, his life demonstrates what it looks like to trust in God. And holding on to this trust is hard to achieve. Living a life of trust, despite what happens in our life, is hard to hold on to. And while he believed in God, he struggled with doubt, and maybe you do too. Maybe you believe in God and you trust in Jesus as a substitute for your sin, that he died on the cross for you, and his righteousness has been given to you and imputed to you because of your faith, and yet you still find yourself in times of doubt. And so did Abraham. And God wants us to see something fresh here, and for Abraham to see something, just to lay it on even thicker for God's faithfulness. And he brings us to our third point as God answers Abraham's continued doubt. God answers our obstacles. How does God respond to Abraham's doubts? This is important. You see, as he brings him to the clearing and he promises a family, he doubts again. And how does he respond? How does God respond? He does not ridicule him. He does not offer him guilt-ridden lessons. He does not shake his finger at him and remind him. He, 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 he reminds him. He helps him see it more clearly. He points him to himself. He, he asks him to trust in his character, in God's character. And Doubt is never encouraged in Scripture, but God creates a space for it to happen. God never tells us to doubt, but when we do doubt, God, he allows a space for that doubt to be fleshed out, for us to sit in that and, and, and think about it. And God does not ridicule us. He doesn't say, stop doubting. You're, you're doubting so much. Just believe. He, he invites us to consider himself and his character. What does he do? Abraham says, God, how do I know that you're going to do this? I look at the stars and I don't have a child and you say that my descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. How do I know you're going to do this? And God says what? He says, I'll tell you what, go get me some animals. Uh, let me show you something. I want to show you something, Abraham. Go get these animals. And then he gets these animals and he begins to cut them in half. All these animals, you know, all these animals, he cuts them in half. Like, not like little animals, like, you know, turtles and litters, lizards. I mean, like cows. Cuts them all in half and he has some time to think. It takes him so much time that, you know, the, the birds of prey begin to gather because of the stench and because of all the blood, and they start to try to devour these animals, and Abraham has to shoo them away. I mean, with all the sharp tools and technology that we have today, if you had to cut three cows in half, it would take you a little bit of time. Imagine what it was like back then, just cutting away at these animals, splitting them in half. And and he's cutting these animals in half, and, and he's familiar with this kind of ceremony because Abraham, he knows what is going on here. He knows what is happening. It's a covenant ceremony. Um, they're about to enter into a covenant. It's an agreement or a contract. A covenant in Scripture is a basic structure of relationship that God establishes with, with mankind, with his people, based on a binding contract that has blessings if obeyed and curses if, if rebelled against, if disobeyed. And you may think of it like this. Arizona, as we come to know, is like a, it's, a, it's a written contract state. So this means that if you, if you want something to be binding, you have to have it in writing. And maybe you've heard this before where you said, yeah, I, I, I had this agreement with this guy that I'd buy the car for this amount, and I got there, and he changed it. And someone would say, well, did you get it in writing? And they say, no. And we're like, well, then you can do nothing. You need to get it in writing. And, and, and when it's in writing, it's enforceable exactly as it's written. 
And if it's in the written contract, it's binding in a court of law. You can take someone to court and say, look at here, this is what is writing. You sign, here's your name, here's the date, you agree to it, and the judge will say, like, hey, it's a contract. It's in writing, and it's binding. So the, the way they made contracts back then was a little different. The way they made contracts really was actually to, to act it out, to act out this agreement. In Jeremiah 34, we see this covenant that's described between God and his people, between God and Israel. And here's how he made a covenant in those days. He took animals and he cut them in half. And what he's saying by cutting them in half is he's saying, if, if, you, do not, if you do not obey the words of this contract, of this covenant, then you, you bring upon yourself the fate of these animals. So the parties that are agreeing in this covenant is basically saying, let, let be done to me if I break this covenant with you what has been done to these animals. Right? It's, an effective, it's, effective, it's an effective way to get somebody to do what they've promised to do, isn't it? You're accountable to your promise. Try that next time. Next time you enter into an agreement. No, it's actually like making a promise with somebody today you might see or in movies where they, they swear, they do a pinky swear, but even more, like someone might cut their hand and shake on it, right? So it's binding with blood. So basically what they're saying is, I promise so much and there's blood that's shed, and if I don't abide by these rules and these promises, then, then let my blood be shed. Um, that's what it's saying. So Abraham's cutting these animals and he's thinking, whoa, here we go. I'm preparing this ceremony. I'm entering into this covenant with God. And Abraham may be thinking, I know what this is about. It's, I know the point of this object lesson. God is, is about to tell me that if I do not be faithful to God and live up to the promise of, of, of my relationship with him, he's going to do this to me. If I go back on, my, on his command, if I disobey him, then this is going to happen to me. Abraham knows exactly what's going on. But what God does is, is completely unexpected. What God does next, he puts Abraham in a deep sleep. And in putting him in a deep sleep, Abraham is saying, or God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, you're not going to join me on this journey. You will not participate in this agreement. You will not be making this walk with me through the animals. And God passes through the animals in the form of a smoking fire pot, a, a smoking torch. And Abraham stands on the sidelines and witnesses God's commitment to his promise. What God is saying in this object lesson is quite simple. In doing this, God is committing to uphold both sides of the contract. Knowing that Abraham would not be able to fulfill his end of the contract, God assumes full responsibility. He is saying, I will keep my end of the deal. And if you, keep, if you fail at your end of the deal, I will suffer the consequences of your failure so that my promise will still be upheld. God is saying to Abraham, even if you fail, if you are not faithful, if you sin against me and rebel against me, I will take your punishment. If you go back on your commitment, I will remain faithful to my promise. God enters into an unconditional covenant with Abraham. An unconditional covenant, it means that God's promise is not contingent on Abraham's faithfulness. And in Abraham's day, we had no idea of what it would cost God to enter into this unconditional covenant. What it would cost God to bear the consequences of, of Abraham's lack of faith and obedience. But we do today. 
we know that on that day that God passed through those animals in that form of a, a smoking torch and a flaming pot, it was the person of Jesus Christ who walked through that bloody path to the cross, marked not with the blood of animals, but with his own blood. When God said, if you are faithless, I will do this to myself. I will be split. I will, I will be destroyed. I will take full responsibility. It is the presence of Jesus that is walking through those animals as we see him crucified on the cross. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of Adam's sin, of Abraham's sin, of my sin and yours. The crucifixion of Jesus was God's keeping the covenant promise and assuming Abraham's disobedience and my obedience and yours. And for we read in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, God does provide that sacrifice in, in Genesis 22 when Abraham said to his son, God will provide the lamb. He will provide the sacrifice. He does provide it. He provides it in Jesus Christ. And in fact, in Genesis 22, he provides a lamb, a ram in the thicket. As, they, as right as Abraham was about to, he held his knife up to his son and he was about to kill his son. A ram is provided. Foreshadowing God's provision, God's offering to spare Abraham's only son, God gave his only son, Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus himself told the religious leaders in the New Testament, where he said, if, if you want to be forgiven of your sin, if you want to be with God and have this relationship that was promised to Abraham, you must do what Abraham did. And this is what he told the spiritual leaders at the time. Jesus says to the leaders, he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he did see it, and he believed in me. And when Abraham believed in the promise of God, he was believing in, the, in Jesus. He was believing in what God would do through Christ. The answer to our doubts is, is never to pretend, it's, it's to hope. Do not, be te- do not pretend to be joyful. Do not pretend to be confident. Do not pretend to be content. Hope in him. Hope in his promise. Hope, but not in your character, not in, not in your faithfulness, but in his faithfulness, in his steadfast faithfulness to his promise. And as you hope, God will continue to chip away at your self-sufficiency, just like he did with Abraham. He will continue to chip away at those areas where you are still trusting in yourself, where you are still trying to earn God's favor and love and promise through your merit, like you would, you're trying to earn a wage, like at your job. You're trying to put in the work and to get payment. You see, but this promise is not based on a wage, a promise. It's based on a promise that God will keep. He will continue to show you that he alone is the answer to your sin. Are you confident in God like this? Are you confident in him? Now, this isn't just a question for non-Christians. This isn't just a question for those who are, who are not believers in Jesus. It's definitely a question for those who are non-Christians. If you don't know Christ in this way, this is a question for you. Where is your confidence? Are you confident in Christ in this way? That he has provided the means 
for the blessing of God to come to you through Jesus, not through you. But it also needs to be a sobering question for Christians, those who are born in the church, those who have been a Christian their whole life as they have come to feel, those who have recently become Christians, maybe a year, a month, five years ago. This is a sobering question for you. Are you still relying on yourself? Does God need to still chip away at that self-sufficiency? For there are no other kinds of genuine faith but the faith like Abraham. He's the father of our faith as he's come to be known. He, for he believed in the promise of God and nothing else. Not himself. Not his work. Do you realize that there's no other kind of saving faith? There is no other kind of faith that will save you than a faith like this of Abraham? Believing in God's promise through Jesus Christ? See, God purposed to make Abraham an example to us. Not just to bless Abraham, but to make him an example for us. We are children of Abraham and heirs to the promise of God. Not if we are born into his family or a certain kind of family. Not if we are born into a Christian home. Not if we are American or whatever. Part of a Christian family. Not if we're trying to do good. Not if because we used to be bad and now we're, we're changed changed person, but only if we have Abraham's faith. You see, when we get down to it, this is, why, this is why Jesus was killed. This is why he was murdered. This is why he was crucified in that context in history, is because people trusted that by being in Abraham's family, by genetically being Jewish and Hebrew, that the blessings of God would come to them. And Jesus said, you got it wrong. It's not a, you, you are a Jew if you're a Jew inwardly. You are, you are a part of Abraham's family, not by blood, but by faith, by his faith. And they picked up stones to kill him because he was claiming that salvation would come through him and not through us. And that's why they killed him. Do you sometimes feel like Abraham wandering through life, like with these doubts, like going from one doubt to another, just try, not being able to have this confidence and rest in him? Seemingly, from one seemingly broken promise of God to the next, God walked through that, that bloody path to say to you, you can trust me. You can rely on me. You can take me as your shield. You can take my peace because I will forever be true to my promise to you, even when it feels like things are, that I've abandoned you, that the world has abandoned you. Because of Jesus, we can trust in God despite what's going on in our life. Our confidence and trust in God is not determined by our circumstances, but the promise of God. And Jesus has sacrificed. He's, he has sacrificed on the cross. And at that time, he bears our sin and he's separated from God. He's separated from God so that we can be united to God by his grace through faith forever. And the person who trusts in God like this, who's confident in God's promises, is unshakable. So unshakable that God would say to Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. And Abraham would say, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to trust in you. What can happen? You're a faithful God. You see, apart from Jesus, the Bible is clear that it, we should be very afraid of not living up to the commands of God apart from Jesus. That there is a fear, that, that there is a fear that is very real and very rational there is a doubt that's very reasonable for those who do not have Christ and do not trust in him, that we should be afraid. But in Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. 
He is our shield. He, is, he has lived up to the demands of God's commands. He has taken the penalty for our failure to live up to an obedient life so that by faith we could be with him forever and have this relationship with it that he's promised to us. So personal that the curse of sin would be gone forever one day. So the gospel of Jesus allows us to face who we are without ever giving up. You see, there's two things that go on in the Christian life. It, it, the gospel, this, this promise, this good news that Jesus is our sacrifice and the fulfillment of God's promise, the good news says that, you know, we could be honest with ourselves. We can say, I'm struggling, I'm sinning, I'm doubting, I'm weak, I am a bad person. I want to be different. See, the gospel allows us to do that and still move forward towards Christ with confidence, with joy. And the mark of spiritual maturity for you might be that you have arrived at this place where you don't doubt anymore. And maybe that's what you're looking for. Yeah, I want to be a strong Christian. So that means I want to get to a place where I'm just, I'm not worried. I'm confident. I don't doubt about anything. But that might not happen. Just because you doubt does not mean you're not you don't just stay idle. No, we, we look forward to God's promise. We look at His promise, which is we know Jesus. We, we know is Jesus. And Jesus says that, well, the Apostle Paul actually says about Jesus, says all of God's promise find their yes in Him. So whenever God says something that we long for, we should look to Christ and see it fulfilled in Him. And that by being in Him and trusting in Him, we receive the riches of God's blessing here and forever. So we can be honest with how we fail because we know that God will never give up on us because we have been united to God through faith in Jesus. Is that great news? You see how this points to Jesus, it points to our hope. Even going way back in a story like Abraham, that he was still preparing the way, and the point is that don't try to be good like Abraham. Don't try to be good like Adam. You have failed, you will fail. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray.